Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Just one announcement before I introduce my guest today. One thing I take pride in with this podcast is that we don't exclude anyone from membership. So today we've given around 400 free subscriptions to those who've expressed financial challenges. With the growing impact of this podcast, I hope to continue providing free membership to those with financial difficulties. And to continue doing this, we've started a campaign to pay it forward. So if you're in a position to do so and are willing to sponsor a subscription, please consider paying it forward by making a donation to help grow the conversations with Coleman community. And you can do that at colemanhughes.org. So my guest today is Anthony Barksdale. Anthony Barksdale was the acting commissioner of the Baltimore Police Department from 2007 to 2012 and has worked at various levels of policing as well as with the FBI. And he's now also a commentator uh, for CNN. Anthony and I discuss the national conversation on policing and racism. We talk about the shooting of Micaiah Bryant. We talk about Brazilian jiu-jitsu and how martial arts training could prevent the need for cops to use deadly force. We talk about the possibility of substituting cops with mental health professionals. We talk about the shooting of Rayshard Brooks and when it makes sense to let suspects flee a crime scene. We talk about the over-policing of low-level drug crime and prostitution. We talk about the Ferguson effect and the current mass retirement of police officers. We talk about the defund movement, qualified immunity. We talk about the psychological dynamic between an officer and a suspect during a routine traffic stop. And we talk about how to get rid of bad cops. I admire Anthony so much, and I'm so glad that I'm able to bring him to an audience that may have not have heard of him before. And you can see me express that admiration throughout the conversation. So I, I really hope that you guys find this one valuable. This is Anthony Barksdale. Okay, Anthony, thank you so much for coming on my show. Thank you for having me, Coleman. Thank you. We spoke many months ago in a Manhattan Institute event, and I was really impressed with your mind on issues relating to policing and and crime and everything related to those very deep and important topics in our culture. And I was frankly surprised that I hadn't heard you speak on these issues before. And I'm so honored to be able to bring you to my audience and hopefully people who may or may not have heard you before will be introduced to your expertise on these issues. So, so just thanks again for giving me your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. So before we get into all of the topics I want to talk to you about, can you please just give a quick summary of your career and how you came to be a, a, a police officer at the various levels of policing that you've occupied and, and just what your experience is? Sure. I was uh, born and raised in West Baltimore, not the 
best community, but it's a community that I love. Saw violence at an early age, saw my first guy get his head blown off uh, at the age of 12 at a football practice right next to a basketball court. Just, you know, I'll be 50 soon and I can still remember that day, you know, vividly. And I remember the coach threw us into a dumpster. Dumpster had a bunch of trash in it and it also had a lot of rats in it. And, you know, the rats are flopping around. We're in that dumpster and you, you, you just hear all this commotion out there after the shooting happened. And I just, I never wanted another kid to see that or go through that in his or her life. And I went to Coppin State for a little bit. But one day coming out of school, I saw some young black cops and I never you know, saw so many young black cops in my, in my life at that point. Told my mother, I said, Ma, I'm going to stop wasting your money. Stop wasting these Pell Grants. And uh, I'm going to try to become a police officer. Got hired, went through the academy, worked in uh, what's called Cherry Hill in Westport in South Baltimore, which actually isn't too far from where I grew up. Uh, during those times, uh, both communities were occupied by violent gangs. And that was my first contact with just dealing with people that had no concern about killing others within their communities. And started uh, working with uh, the FBI on an organization, did a RICO while actually a patrol officer working with the FBI, which is very rare. I started, you know, looking at things to say, how can we be more effective in policing, not lock everybody up? Then a New Yorker comes to town to be commissioner. He saw a case that I made, pulled me into his office, and that's when things really started to move in my career. I was taught Comstat by the late Jack Maple when he would come down to Baltimore. He would tutor me, mentor me on uh, how to use CompStat as a tool. So I'm a sergeant learning things that many executives in their police and career just never had the opportunity to learn. So I, I started having this New York education in policing, but then I had the Baltimore background to add to it. So I then get promoted to detective lieutenant after sergeant, detective major, detective colonel, and then I become the youngest deputy commissioner of operations in Baltimore City history. For those who don't know, um, the, the deputy of operations runs the crime fight. Every single day, that was my job to look at crime, look at the data, look at deployments, look at if we're being effective or not in these communities and get the job done. Um, it was... Uh, a crime plan I designed. I moved Baltimore City away from mass arrest and went to a model that I call focused proactive enforcement. I mean, I, I know a lot of people throughout the terminology out there uh, now in policing and your politicians saying, you know, precision policing and, you know, various other hot catchphrases. But I think that it's more complex than many understand. But Coleman, that's, that's it. Then I became acting commissioner. I was, you know, had the whole department under me until September of 2012. And that's when I 
put in to retire. Well, that's a, that's an illustrious career. So as we get into these topics, I just want to frame what I think is my baseline goal and, and sort of concern about America right now with respect to this issue, which is that on the one hand, we have the, the very real issue of violent crime as illustrated by your harrowing experience as a 12-year-old seeing that there are kids growing up in neighborhoods all around the country that have to contend with that early childhood trauma. And we need a police force on the one hand that can effectively respond to citizens' need for safety on the one hand and ultimately try to reduce homicides and violent crimes so that kids can grow up in the neighborhoods that many of us just take for granted. On the other hand, we need citizens to feel at the same time that they can trust the police and that the police are not abusing them. And this is an extremely delicate balance And I feel that most conversations I hear in the public domain about this issue just don't take into account both sides, both sides of this equation, and therefore just paint the issue as as simply as possible, simplistically as possible, really. And so that's really my overriding concern. And, and the reason I want, I want to have someone like you on the podcast. So I guess we can first, I, I'll first just ask you if you have any reactions to, to what I just said, to balancing those two concerns and how, what you see right now in, as the tenor of the public conversation. I absolutely uh, understand your two main points. We're in a... You know, policing itself is in a very tough place right now with the so many incidents caught on body camera from Chauvin to uh, Dante Wright to Mr. Brown in Elizabeth City. So all of these things, all of these incidents start to erode public faith in policing. But while that's going on, while these incidents do occur, the day-to-day actions of other police officers must continue. They still must serve the citizens, and that's what they're trying to do. I think that we're not doing, and I say, you know, having been a former police executive, I think that police executives need to do a far better job in standing up for their officers and what they face on a daily basis. Now, when we start to look at the uh, incidents that occur from Breonna Taylor and and so many other incidents that are documented now, we have to do a better job at training and holding everyone accountable in policing. Coleman, it's not it's it's not just the officer at the bottom. You know, if if I'm a, a commissioner, you got to hold me accountable too. You know, what am I training my officers? Am I disciplining them? Am I looking for issues internally? where I may have a corrupt cop, where I may have a cop that's using uh, excessive force against minorities. What am I doing about that? 
And it's, it's something that I, I just don't feel that we're, we're getting there. And our communities, especially minority communities, we need police officers. I don't, I don't know this whole thing of get rid of cops and the, the over-policing thing. If there's a crime cluster building in your community, if you're losing little kids, women and men, consistently in your community, I got to send cops there. I'm sending them there. Whether you like it or not, we've got violent criminals in your community. And the goal is to subtract the most violent out of your community constitutionally. And that's something we got to stand on. We're just losing too many people. This pace, and it's not just the, uh, the mass shootings, four or more that hit the national news. It's the daily one homicide here, the two homicides there. It all adds up to be so much more. And we have to start communicating better about what police do, what we're doing to hold them accountable, and what training they're going to and restore that type of trust where when they see police, they're saying, okay, we know why they're here and we need them instead of we want them out. Yeah. A fact I've said before on this podcast, which I think many people don't know because of how the issue is talked about is that when Gallup polled black Americans a few months ago and asked them, do you want the same amount of police in your neighborhood, more police or less police? It was about 60% of black people said, I want the same amount. About 20% said, I want more. And about 20% said, I want less, which is a, an interesting balance and, and certainly different from the, the line that black people just want less police full stop. I think it's a much more complicated picture than that. And it's, it's very much affected by this, uh, again, another fact that many people don't know because it's not often talked about which is that homicide is the number one cause of death for young black men, black men in their 20s and 30s. And that's not true for, for young white men or, or young Hispanic men. So this is a very difficult problem and a problem where the police have to play a role, right? Getting rid of the police simply is not on the menu here. Improving the police certainly is, but getting rid is just not, it's not in the cars. Um, it, that, that's a way of just throwing your hands up so, so far as I'm concerned. So let's talk. There's a lot of different topics to, to go for here. I think one I can start with is the idea of verbal de-escalation of, of police incidents with suspects. There is an idea that with many of these instances that escalate to a police firing their weapon, there could have been a way to either train someone to verbally de-escalate the situation so that it did not have to get to the point of violence. In, in your experience, what do you make of this prospect? Is this realistic? Um, how could this be done if it needs to be done? I'll speak from my experience. I've had people try to pull guns on me numerous times. I had people try to pull guns on me numerous times during my career. Some black and some white. I was able to overcome their actions and get control of the situation without shooting someone. And that was me. Now, some other officer 
of a different size. I, you know, I've got a background, did Brazilian jiu-jitsu for over 18 years. Um, so I'm very comfortable, you know, in that type of situation, close up. But other officers are not, they're not me. So each officer is different. So if I'm telling you, drop the gun or don't do it, maybe I project differently, but another officer might be able to do, say the same exact thing I'm saying, and the person does it anyway. So what I firmly believe in is each case, each incident needs to be looked at and analyzed on its own. You're looking at the, the officer, you're looking at the suspect. And I, I think when we do this as a, you know, a fungible mass of, oh, you know, these uses of force, they shot someone that's unarmed or they did this or that. We got to break all of that down. We, we really do need to break down, you know, what was happening? What did the officer articulate? Did the person have, make any statements? Did the, did the uh, suspect make any statements where we can start saying, OK, this is an issue that we can fix? Um, I, I think it's too easy to say, oh, you should have when it, it's more complicated than that. So verbally, if you're going to pull a gun or you're pointed a gun at me and I'm going to deescalate, then I don't know if, if you've actually got the gun on me. I'm not going to do a bunch of talking. You if force is met with equal or more force to overcome it. Gun, if you pulled a gun on me, if you could get it out, I go to my gun. I'm not going to use my words. I'm not going to use my taser or my mace. Gun equals gun. And I don't know why police executives aren't standing on the training that we get in use of force. I know it's ugly. I, I, I know that it's not a pretty thing, but policing gets ugly sometimes. And Coleman, if you pulled a gun on me, I'm pulling out my gun. If I can't trap it in time, my gun comes out. Okay. And I, I, I'm retired and I keep waiting to see other police executives speak up about the realities that their men and women are facing out there and they're not doing it. They're not telling the public the truth, explaining it to everyone. And so it just keeps going. It keeps going. De-escalation when you're pulling out a weapon or you have a weapon pointed at me, it doesn't work. I'm too late. We've passed that point. I've got to take action. Now, I can take my gun out and I can challenge you, drop it, drop it, drop it. But you know what? Some officer may not say drop it and fire. And that officer could be justified. They would need to articulate why they did it. So, we have to start digging deeper into these uses of force by police and not just crucifying a cop as soon as they pull a trigger. Let's look at it. What was going on here? Could the escalation have worked? If you didn't use it, why didn't you use it? Explain yourself. So I, I definitely agree that each one of these cases is completely unique. There's so much variability in, in a single interaction that it's very difficult to talk in broad strokes about it. So I want to just bring up a few individual ones. Uh, one is, is Micaiah Bryant, which has been in the news um, in the past month or two. 
and this is most will probably be familiar, but this was a young, well, a, a teenage girl, I think, um, who was drawing back a knife at the time that an, an officer was deployed to the house. So she was what seemed like, you know, uh, one arm swing away from stabbing another girl in the chest. And the officer fired, I think, four bullets after saying, trying to get her attention. But the whole thing happened within seconds. So this is a case where a knife is being met with greater force, a gun. And people had various different opinions of of the cop's actions here. Some people thought he could have verbally de-escalated. Others thought he was perfectly justified in, in using the force he did. So what was your read on this incident and the public reaction to it? First, it was a tragedy, but I thought that the officer, based on my experience and the training that I had as a law enforcement officer, I thought that the, the officer that responded was justified in the use of his service weapon. Now, I said it took some heat for it, and that's okay. But once again, case by case basis, she was in the act of attempting to stab that other young uh, woman. So in my expert opinion, the officer was completely justified to shoot to incapacitate the threat. Yeah, um, I agree. That was my read of the situation as well. And and there's a couple other things that you've said that, that I, I, I want to explore. One is the training itself. Obviously you, you were trained in, in a particular program and every, every precinct or, you know, every cops around the nation are going to have different experiences with how they were trained. But to what extent do you think training is the solution to ensuring that cops react the right way in these high stakes situations is, are there any obvious problems with the way many cops get trained? Are cops trained long enough in in your experience? So can you talk a little bit about training? And then also you mentioned that you were, you've done Brazilian jujitsu for, for 18 years, which is pretty much the, the gold standard of all the fighting styles how, what percentage of cops do you think have that kind of background with martial arts? And how important is that? Do you think more cops should be or could be trained? And how would that influence their, the way they approach these situations? Great questions. Training to me is very important. As the uh, deputy commissioner in Baltimore City, training was so important to me. I launched my own training program directly from my office, where I was putting cops, I I brought in a, I mean, the top SWAT guy, the top SWAT lieutenant in Baltimore City, I actually pulled him from SWAT and brought him into my office, and he launched a program that I backed, and what we would do is, we would go to a place in Baltimore City, right in the community, maybe full of vacant houses or an area that we could control, shut it down. And then we would call cops to that location. 
There, right there, we would take their service weapons, put them up, clear them, check them, be sure um, that everything is good with their guns, give them uh, simulation guns, and send them right there into a situation. And, And train the cops as realistic as possible. And Coleman, you got a lot of people making a lot of money off of training, and it's really, it doesn't cost that much to do proper training. So that's one thing I want to say. Wait, just to, to be clear, you're, in this case, you're sending cops into a situation with a fake gun? Yeah. So what we do is we control an area in Baltimore City. We shut it down. The police, the, the training team shuts the area down, checks the vacant houses, whatever, so it's safe. But we, So we're calling cops that are on duty mm-hmm. to this location, to this block, And we're throwing them into a realistic training scenario. So uh, I'll give you one, one that I really, really like. We got church members to volunteer to play roles in some of the scenarios. So we would have church members with a script and they would, the officer approaches after their gun is cleared. They have a a simunition gun in their holster. And the, the church member says, officer, my son, has mental health issues and he's going off in the house. He's got a knife and I, I don't you shoot him. Don't you shoot him. You know, keep my son alive. And we, we videotape this and we, we would push the officers into these situations. And, you know, from things like mental health crisis to ambushes to just, you know, someone on with a knife, someone on with a gun. And that's what we did. I really believe you have to keep training. So the problem is that so many go through the academy, then you just get one, you know, you get in-service training and nobody wants to be at in-service training. So I wanted to make things more realistic and more beneficial, not only to the cops, but the citizens. So I, I believe a lot of training is needed. I was also what was called a cover man in a, uh, a narcotic squad in Baltimore. So, I mean, easily, I, I'm just going to, a low number is 300 search warrants where I'm going in and I had to make a decision to shoot or don't shoot. It fell on me. And to do that, I had to take additional training with SWAT. I would have to go to the range and I had to shoot all full automatic weapons, um, class three weapons, all of this stuff to keep fresh, to keep, to stay on top, to be ready if necessary, where the target turns and the the range master says vest. So if somebody says vest, where are you shooting? He's got a vest on and I've got to make these decisions in split seconds. I'm hostage. Then I go to a challenge. I drop it, drop it, drop it. So it's a lot of training. I I think that we need a lot more training, quality training in policing, not just check off the box, not just say, oh, he did 40 hours. You're good to go. We need to invest in these officers. And your your second point, Brazilian Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah. Yeah. So what I did, can I reach just like real quick to my left? I want to show you something. Sure. Can I show you? Go ahead. it's funny we're talking about. Okay, that's if you see me, mm-hmm. that's Colson Gracie before his death. Wow. That's the he gave me. I'm sorry. That, that's the night he promoted me to a purple belt. That's when I got my purple belt. Yeah. 
Um, so I firmly believe uh, over and over again, we're seeing cops go to the ground and have no clue what to do. Mm-hmm. They're not familiar with a guard. They're not familiar with a mount. They're not looking at, you know, locks where they can control someone instead of having to strike someone. And of course, you know, striking someone may be necessary at times, but if you are confident in, you know, your ground game and dealing with somebody's weight and your weight in a, in a tussle, you're just so much more comfortable and confident that you can make it through, that you're going to be okay. And keep in mind, a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu was based on technique where size wasn't the issue. Where you, If you understand leverage, if you understand how to use your weight or understand where the other person is vulnerable, you can control them with the least damage to them and yourself as possible. So I'm a huge believer that police officers should be very familiar with Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I even took my uh, a couple of my teams. I couldn't force it on them, but I would get my instructor to come down sometimes to Baltimore and just offer free free jujitsu. You know, I, I'd have to take them to lunch or whatever after that. Free jujitsu if you wanted to participate. And a lot of the uh, a lot of the detectives um, enjoyed it and and learned a lot from it. So full supporter of Brazilian jujitsu for better outcomes uh, when force is needed. Yeah, there's this one video of, I don't know if you've seen this, but it was promoted by some jujitsu people of three cops trying to arrest a man in a McDonald's who was on PCP. If, if you type in police taser McDonald's on YouTube, you'll find this. And it, it it's just, it's maybe 10 minutes of these cops trying to arrest a guy with no shirt and shoes, having no idea what they're doing. And admittedly, the guy was on PCP, which made him way stronger than, than he was. But some of the cops were big too, and they're tasing him and it's doing nothing. And they have no idea how to bring him down. And they, it's just basically an advertisement for jujitsu and an indictment of how poorly trained uh, the average cop is at grappling and, and bringing down a suspect without doing damage to the suspect and to him or herself. So you know, why, you know, y- you had to do favors to, to get the, the BJJ instructor to help some of your people. Why can't we just, why can't this be baseline part of police training? Coleman, I tried. I tried to present it to say, let's move the Baltimore City Police Department over to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Instead, they went with some other training program, and these people are raking in the money when, you know, it, it was just not necessary. We have a lot of fiscal waste in policing, and that's what, it disturbs me. I really thought that I had a, no pun intended, a fighting chance to, to get Baltimore City into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And it didn't happen, but I really think that these police executives, these politicians, really need to start rethinking that. It is a, a realistic way to, it, it'll help lessen the need for 
escalation, and it'll help keep the citizens alive and the officers alive with minimum, as much uh, as the least amount of damage possible to either one. And, and now some would say, you know, oh, well, don't they do a bunch of chokes? Look, Brazilian jiu-jitsu has a lot more to it than chokes. Yes, I could, I could choke someone with the sleeve of my shirt or, or their own collar if I wanted to, but I don't use that in policing from certain arm bars to leg locks. There's so much more that could be done and we're turning our back on it in favor of other training that is highly ineffective. This, I'm going to look at this McDonald's taser uh, incident uh, as soon as we get done, but I'm seeing it over and over again. And I, I am so happy that you're seeing it and hopefully others are seeing it, but it hasn't been enough to get a change in training. The experiment you or, or the training exercise you just you talked about that you did brings up another important topic, which is mental illness and how mentally ill suspects should be treated differently, if 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 at all, than mentally not ill suspects. So, you know, it seems to me there's there's two sorts of mentally ill suspects. There's some I've seen in New York City where the mental illness doesn't affect their likelihood of committing an imminent crime against someone. It's, it's, they're mentally ill, but from the point of view of the people around them, they're just as dangerous as a normal criminal who just wants to stab or, or kill somebody. But then there's another kind of mental illness where they might be holding a knife, but they're, because of their mental illness, there's some way of talking to them that's going to talk them down from the episode they're having. And identifying which kind of suspect you're dealing with seems probably very tough. But when there is an example of the second kind of mentally ill suspect who could have been talked down, but the cop doesn't know how to do that, and it may be very difficult, right? It may be that the family tried and failed, knowing, knowing very intimately about the kind of thing that might usually work. It seems really galling from the point of view of the public because there may have been a way to save that person's life. So, and one of the recommendations here is to deploy professionals to those kinds of situations. So how do you think about that problem and what do you think about the proposed solutions? I've I've thought about this a lot. I'll go back to what I've experienced in my life as a police officer, got a call one day, family had gotten the the paperwork for their loved one to uh, have a a psyche valve at a local hospital. My partner, a person in my squad goes to serve it. I go to back him up. We go in the house, the family's waiting for us. We go in. One person does the talking, very quiet, very calming, Hey, you know, this is what we're going to do. Just just come on with us. And the family is saying, go with them, baby, go with them. And we get the cuffs on. Great. I'm thinking, Coleman, I'm saying, whoo, we're good to go now. We can get him to the hospital and we can get back into service. Get outside. And I'm in my car writing, my patrol car writing my report. And I see 
my other the, the other cop's car. It's like bouncing up and down. I jump out like, what the hell is going on? I can't see him. I see I don't see him at the, uh, you know, in the driver's seat. I don't see the uh, emergency petition that that's the that's what we call it here for someone needing a psyche valve. And I run around the car and the guy is even though he's handcuffed, he's trying to pull away and get away from the other cop. I get involved and he, you know, when we were inside the house, Coleman, he was fine. And then all of a sudden I became a demon and my partner became a dragon. And this happens in split seconds. And this, he was in real fear. He just was screaming and he's kicking. He wasn't shackled. He was handcuffed. He's kicking and he's, he's, he's trying to pull away and run. And so I've seen those dynamics change so fast. So I hear, I hear, let's send mental health professionals in. But I am saying there needs to be a package deal. You may be a mental health professional. Maybe you can get that person calm, but you better have officers on standby. So how really effective and efficient is it going to be? Because here's the problem, Coleman, is if the officers come into the situation where they already need to use force, could we have not, could we have avoided it if officers had actually physically been there from the start? And that's my concern. I'm all for, look, I'm, I'm, I'm all for mental health professionals being out there to help this issue. But for their safety, for the for the individual safety, we really need to get it right. We really need to be sure that we don't put ourselves in a position that is bad for the individual. So I'm open to it. I would love to see more data on it as as many jurisdictions roll it out. But I, I'll be honest with you, I have a bit of cognitive bias about it because of what I've gone through and what I've seen during my career. So we can try it, but I, I really, and I hope it works, but we've got to pay attention to the results. So another question I, I had, I, I went out on Twitter to see what questions people were curious about. And this is one I thought was interesting. And it was brought to mind by the shooting of Rayshard Brooks I think in Atlanta last year where he managed to grab an officer's taser. And as he was running away from the officers, he turned around and shot the taser while running or was about to shoot the taser. Then the officer shot him and seriously injured him a bit, but he survived. So the question is in what situation, if any, should you just allow a suspect to escape? And you know, so I, I, you may have experiences here, but this is something that people have a lot of different opinions on. Are there some situations where it, it just makes sense to let them get away? I believe so. I believe there are sometimes when officers, if they've lost control of the suspect, first of all, if I'm placing you under arrest, I'm going to be firm and resolute. You are under arrest. And when I physically gain control of you, you are my responsibility, and I'm not going to let anything happen to you. 
I'm taking care of you. That's on me now. And I, I don't want nobody's going to, you know, punch you, kick you, attack you. You're with me. So if you break away and you were in my custody and there is a felony, I'm not, I'm going after you. If it's just, if you were, you know, in my opinion now, if it's, if it's a warrant, depending on what kind of warrant it is, if it's a homicide warrant, I'm really going after you. If it's an attempted murder warrant, I'm going after you. But if it's a shoplifting warrant, if it's some drug stuff or whatever, what I would call minor stuff, if I failed you once, I'll find you again. I'm not, I, I don't need to, uh, me personally, I'd rather the officer just write an escape prisoner report, explain what happened, take the discipline for it, and get back to work. But to go overboard to, you know, the contempt of cop, how dare you run from me? Coleman, people run from cops. People fight cops. That's the reality of the profession. So, yeah, and I, I know it's hard to see somebody get away from you, but we have to start being a lot smarter about what's worth it and what's not worth it. Now, one of my biggest problems, like recently, I'm seeing department after the department imply that foot chases are bad. Well, when I was in the academy, we actually trained in foot chases. We really did. The academy instructor, we went to the back parking lot and get a scenario. You're standing there talking and then boom, she's gone. And she used to run track. So, <laughs> She, you know, we, we train these scenarios to help us learn what to do in a chase. So when you're chasing someone, you have to still speak clearly. You still need to know where you're going. You still need to be giving out a description, what direction, and you're using what you're projecting out to get help to you to box this fleeing suspect in. So Again, just like the uses of force, I think the foot chase issue or the vehicle pursuit issue, again, we need to go case by case basis. Yes, I mean, that's where I am with it. I think that we are, you know, stripping so many tools off of the policing tool belt now that we're actually impacting their effectiveness. And, and when I say that, we can point to many cities across the United States that are failing right now when it comes to stopping violent crime. And you'll see that many of them are following the same new reimagined policing type thinking. So one of the problems that many people have pointed out with American policing in various cities at various times has been that violent crimes in many cases go unsolved routinely. Whereas low-level drug offenses or shoplifting are penalized disproportionately, which is to say there are communities where very often poor communities of color where people are just in and out of jail, uh, you know, even for very short periods of time for marijuana or something like that, where kids in the suburbs are you know, smoking in their parents' houses with, without consequences. So there's that disparity. And then there's, so, so what people perceive in these communities is that cops are over-policing these petty 
crimes that in a way that's unfair to us relative to other people in the country. And yet over half of our homicides are, are going unsolved. So this uh, it seems like a very unhealthy dynamic. And, and it was brought to mind to me by, by what you just said about letting sort of low level shoplifter if they're running away and it's going to be too tough to get them, letting them go in that case. So can you talk about your experience with, with policing low level offenders, um, petty crime, how you thought about that in Baltimore and what you see in, in other departments with how they can improve? Sure. In, uh, in 2007, I created a crime plan for Baltimore city. So I roll it out because we were in a state where we were locking up over 100,000 people a year in some years in Baltimore. And I think the population was just over 600,000. So think about that. So what I wanted to do was get away from petty arrest. But here's the thing. Coleman, I've seen arrests for a dime bag of weed help solve a murder. I had one case where a prostitute uh, what is it? What is it right? Is it is it right to say sex worker now? I, I guess sex worker. Yeah, it was a sex worker. And, you know, she was about to do something. I intervened and I said, look, I'm not I'm not arresting you, but I need help. Three guys had just been killed in a, a row house uh, about five blocks away from where I grew up. I knew the three guys because I had raided the house before I got promoted to sergeant. So I said, please tell me, do you know anything about the homicides up the street? And she said, yes, I do, because you didn't lock me up for some BS. I want to help you. I know who did it. I can identify him. It's a beef going on. What do you need me to do? Coleman, within an hour and a half, homicide sergeant called me saying, we got it. We got it. Thank you so much. So, look, I'm not saying ignore all crimes. I'm not saying that. Again, we go by a case-by-case basis. But if that person, if the street knows that you're not prosecuting what they're doing, they don't care. I have no leverage. I'm ineffective. And we see this at jurisdiction after jurisdiction when we have progressive prosecutors say a whole category of crimes I'm not going to prosecute. Well, what if what if a sex worker is uh, caught breaking the law and I need to know some criminal intelligence that they can provide now that they know there's no prostitution? you know, prostitution isn't prosecuted, they're not concerned with me. I have no leverage. Again, we're back to officers being stripped of tools that could help them be more effective for the citizens. I am against mass arrest. I do not believe in a bunch of drug arrests that are way to win. I got out of that many years ago, but I'll admit I used to be a drug warrior. I come out And we would hit the street and we'd lock you up, lock you up, lock you up, lock you up. But I need to tell you one story about what changed all of that for me. It's in Gilmore Homes, a block down from where Freddie Gray, uh, the Freddie Gray incident happened. Run up. There's a group of uh, heroin buyers and, you know, they're, they're getting their drugs. 
I run up with the rest of the squad. Guy turns to me, he, bumps, he runs right into me, and he's got his hand clenched. He runs into me. I said, open your hand. He's got the heroin right there in his hand. Put him, up, put him in cuffs, and we get to court. And, you know, that, that night I thought something was odd. He, he was saying, please let me ride with you. Don't put me in the wagon. I can't take that. Please, please, please. So I let him ride with me down to the uh, central booking. Well, Coleman, it turns out this man who I arrested was a Vietnam uh, war hero. And the United States military stood in the courtroom. They represented him and told the judge um, that I should be thanked for the way that I treated him. And I, I mean, really, that to, to me, I was just done. I didn't notice this man was a war hero. I didn't know that he had so much damage from being a war. But that told me, OK, that's a possession charge. One pill of heroin is a possession charge. Are we really digging into why we're locking up so many people? Or is this arrest going to move us forward in solving an act of violence? That's all I started to care about. Is this arrest going to move the department forward on closing an act of violence? So from guns to drugs, I kind of have a different mindset. And um, I know it's not popular to some, but from 07 to 2012, we hit historic lows in Baltimore with the homicide rate. Cut the mass incarceration. I ended mass incarceration. And we started chopping off tens of thousands of arrests in Baltimore City. So I know what I just said may sound strange, but that was just my experience. So one, one reaction to that is, are all cops as wise as you are? Implicitly, my answer is no. And what I, what I mean by that is, so let's say you keep prostitution illegal as a bargaining chip in order to solve actual violent crimes. How many cops are really going to use it that way? And what percentage are actually going to simply keep arresting and so forth? Or maybe suspect gets chippy with them, says something, gives them the finger, pisses them off. And they say, well, fuck it. I'm going to arrest you because I can. You know, so what's the balance there? Well, that's another great question. So what I did in Baltimore, um, when I was promoted, I told the mayor that I needed full control of Comstat. So every, you know, I'm constantly pulling the cases, pulling the data, and I'm looking for red flags. And I'm challenging the commanders as to what are their cops doing. So let me answer your question you have a, a, a huge point right here. No, everybody doesn't see it the way I do. But with, with the rank that I had, you're going to see it my way. I'll be sure you see it my way or you're going to have big problems. But in other systems, I, I don't know. I, I doubt it. And I, I really understand your point. But you can hold them accountable. You can pull cases and, and try to figure out what are they doing. You're looking at the data, seeing if you see the, uh, the red flags and you've got to take action. And one thing that I, I used to do that was really unpopular, I would question gun arrest. You know, uh, you know, that was one where I really 
would get, you know, they wouldn't say it to my face, but a lot of back talk. Look, if, if you have a community, for example, many minority communities, when you look at the homicides and the shootings and the robberies, you look at the clusters, look at the clusters in cities like Chicago and Baltimore and, uh, you know, even New York, black and brown communities, clusters of violent crime. And this has been going on for many years. In Baltimore, we're going into our, what, uh, sixth or seventh year of 300 plus homicides. So if you're left to try to survive in a community where violence is happening every single day, if you get a gun, if you can obtain a gun legally or illegally and carry it, would you consider it? Would you do it? A lot of people say, yes, I'm going to take that chance instead of being in a body bag. I'm going to take that chance instead of my kid being shot. So what I wanted to stress was we go after the right individuals. You know, growing up, I remember when certain guys would get locked up and my mother, my grandfather would say, all right, y'all can go out and play because the neighborhood knew the guy was gone. So locking up people with no nexus to Violence is what worries me. And, and, and I know once again, this is strange to hear, but I want the I want the ones who are constantly using guns to harm others. I don't want the guy who, who is carrying a gun out of fear because we're letting him uh, down, letting his family down by letting the crime continue. So focused enforcement was really important to me. I hated seeing so many times, you know, kids would get locked up. I say during the interview, dude, why, why are you strapped? Why you got the gun? And they'd say, my boy just got killed the other night. Or I got shot at. Or some stick-up boys that keep coming to that bus stop and robbing us. And now this kid has a gun charge. That's what I got tired of. When I felt that we could do better, Coleman, there's enough. We had enough criminal intelligence to figure out who do we really need to focus on. You know, stop and frisk. A lot of people, you know, hear stop and frisk and they go crazy. Stop and frisk is a constitutionally backed tool that police can use. But it's not just riding around, hey, lift your shirt up, crap. Or, oh, I think he's got a gun. There's a lot more to it, but it has to be on the table. And jurisdiction after jurisdiction are taking away things that are constitutionally okay for police to do. And now we're going to act like, oh, why are these crime rates happening? Oh, it's COVID. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. How about getting back to the basics that we saw used in New York with Comstat, getting back to the basics of doing the right things and holding everyone from the top to the bottom accountable. So I, I really do get your point. I'm sorry if I went off on a tangent. No, no, that was great. That was a, a great question. Um, there's one thing you mentioned in there that I wanted to pick up on, uh, but I'm not remembering it. So let's just go to some of my other questions here. Were you um were you retired when the Freddie Gray incident happened, or were you you were already retired by that point? I was gone. Yeah, okay. I was out. Well, one question I have here is about whether cops 
change their behavior or their culture in reaction to incidents like what happened to Freddie Gray. There's a debate among scholars about what has been called the Ferguson effect of police backing off when their city comes under national attention because of one of these highly publicized incidents of a police use of force against an unarmed civilian. So putting aside the question of whether crime rises, in your experience, do cops really change their day-to-day behavior in reaction to incidents like this? Absolutely. You know, I wasn't there for Freddie Gray, but years prior, when certain incidents would happen, it would go right through the department, you know, from no matter what district you worked, you heard about it and cops would say, oh, well, don't do that. So it definitely occurs. Police do adjust their, adjust themselves to the current climate. And, you know, most cops just have a thinking of, I don't want to be next. While you still have that small percentage, there's there's really a, a small percentage of officers that do a majority of the proactive work. And some of them will keep going. And they believe that they're confident enough to know the rules of the agency, to know the law, that they can still perform their duties. And the thing is, instead of, you know, the thing is, you want to get the whole agency to feel that confident that they understand how to do the job, no matter what's going on in a lawful manner. So, yes, I do believe the Ferguson effect is very real. I think I I haven't seen anyone or maybe it's been done. Maybe you've seen it where you take the data to compare how many uh, arrests were made in the better years of the city. Um, You know, things like arrests, criminal informants is a huge measure that I would how much information is flowing into a police department. That's a huge measure for me, because if you don't have the criminal intel, you're you're flying blind. You don't know where you're going. So. Things like that. And then, of course, you're, you're tracking uses of force and, and uh, other red flags uh, with officers. But, yeah, they, they can shut down. And, uh, you know, it's, it's called uh, upward discipline. Officer, if they don't, officers can work just to the letter. They don't have to go overboard. They can use their discretion and still collect a paycheck. They don't have to. Uh, to get out and chase people like we were talking about. If, it, if it's not a homicide, attempted murder or something very important, a big felony, they could just say, hey, oh, well. And I think city after city, we're seeing the results of that. They're, they're not as engaged as, as they could be or you know, not as engaged as we need them to be. And we're also seeing so much experience flee the profession. You know, these retirements should be so disturbing to not only the politicians, but the citizens. It takes years. It takes years before you're a solid cop. I I mean, you know, when I was a rookie, it was so much stuff I didn't get, you know, two years in, three years in, you know, three, four years in. I'm I'm pretty confident. But it it took me about. uh, I would say five years before I became just solid all the way around. And, you know, every one of us has a different learning curve. So 
I think we have a lot of problems, but I absolutely believe that the Ferguson Ferguson effect is one of those huge problems. So when you talk about these retirements being a problem, you're talking about cops retiring earlier than they would have because of the climate around policing right now? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, with so many of these, uh, the cops, they'll tell you flat out, as soon as I hit retirement, uh, when I can retire, I'm gone. There's no, I, I want to stick around. You know, a lot of cops are, and some are even just, what they can do now is look to go to a different agency and a location that doesn't have the same issues that, you know, the jurisdiction that they're in right now is going through. You know, they can go to a place who, and if this is a great environment for some, for some jurisdictions to get some highly skilled cops that are disgruntled from where they're working now. And it, that's a, that's a big deal. And I don't think these politicians are really uh, understanding this. And another thing is I don't clap. I do not get excited when I see as attrition is hitting an agency when, oh, we just had a new academy class. Because then we go back to how long will it take before these cops become solid? How long will it take before they understand how to deal with violent criminals? So it's not something that excites me, and it is a huge concern, and I think it's getting worse. Um, retirements are a huge, huge concern. And it also seems like very experienced cop moving to an easier precinct, probably a precinct with less violent crime to begin with, compounds the problem because... That just means sort of the best cops are going to are, are fleeing the areas that most desperately need the best policing. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And it's, you know, who, who, who wouldn't want to just go if you're frustrated and you can go to a different jurisdiction and they'll pay you more and you don't have the same homicides, attempted homicides and robberies on a daily basis. It's really something they, they better start paying attention to it. So another question here is about the effect of defund the police. Mm -hmm. We've seen some uh, departments go through with at least some level of defunding. And I'm curious what you think of, of the results of that. Look, in some cases, I understand uh, the defund the police movement. I mean, in Baltimore, our police department now is over half a billion dollars. While we're spending that kind of money, the attempted homicides are still rolling. Carjackings are still rolling. So I say, wait, before we put more money into this, let's look at what are we doing with what we have right now? What's the return on investment for what we have right now? Why are we putting in so much money for these results? So it's not just Baltimore. I'm not just picking on Baltimore, but you're looking at, look at the money in Philadelphia and, and many other uh, big cities. When the police are basically ineffective because politicians 
and certain police executives are stripping them from things that they could do to be proactive towards violent crime, it starts to become expensive. An ineffective crime plan, an ineffective accountability system costs taxpayers in lives and dollars. So what I'm saying is, if you're going to be getting this money, we need to measure what we get in return. So I've seen some defund that was just, to me, it was just propaganda. Oh, I'm going to defund. And they, they take something away that really doesn't matter. But it hit the cool points for them with the public. But the agencies are going to become effective and there's going to be accountability. And they can show that if they have this money, this is what we're going to do with it. This is what the public will get in return i.e. a 10% drop in homicides, a 20% drop in carjackings, then okay, we can invest there. But I am not one to throw millions of dollars into policing when it is currently ineffective. Did that make sense to you? Did you? I I don't know if it, I'm saying, man, look, if if we're going to spend the money, then make it happen but we're spending the money and we're going the wrong way across the United States. And yeah, I hear the unions and, you know, I know I, I hear them, but right now we need to be focused on what's broken. What are the fundamentals? The fundamentals of policing are, are broken right now. Let's fix the fundamentals. Let's look at the fiscal cost of this. Let's get more effective. And then let's talk about what needs to be funded and what needs to be defunded. Yeah. To me, the funding has always seemed like a distraction from the real issues. It's like people put some amount of weight on the number that the NYPD is getting as if the number tells you something deep about how the, about the quality of the policing, which it, which it really doesn't. So it's always seemed to me like people can claim victory if they, Oh, we, we defunded this amount or, and in another way, other people could claim victory saying we increase the funding, but the only important question is how those dollars are translating into quality policing, right? That That's what it's always seemed like to me. I feel the same. That's exactly, I think you said it better than I did, <laughs> but that's exactly what I'm saying. We, I, Yes, I'll just leave it at that. Absolutely. All right. So a few more questions here. So uh, qualified immunity is, is another part of this conversation that a lot of people were, were curious about. Th- this is, um, this basically protects officers against personal liability in civil suits. So if, if an officer does something to me and I want to bring a civil suit against that officer, um, qualified immunity makes it much more difficult for that officer to have to pay me something. And now, just in the past few months, Colorado, Connecticut, New Mexico, and New York City have either ended or significantly weakened qualified immunity for officers. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what your view of qualified immunity is and how you saw it operate as, as an officer? As an officer, you know, we operated under qualified immunity, but we still had rules. We still had, you know, the Constitution. We still had uh, Maryland state law. We still had departmental rules. So 
you're training, you're the, you know you need to be within these roles. And if you go beyond them, then you must be held accountable. So qualified immunity, to me, in hindsight, was a good thing. But wasn't I supposed to follow the rules anyway? Now, and so, you know, somebody could make allegations. And that's the one thing I think that comes up a lot. Many officers do their job and they're going to get complaints. They're going to get allegations. And I think that there needs to be some clear messaging on how far the department will look into these allegations or et cetera. And we all need to understand that this is a huge shift for policing to be stripped of qualified immunity. So, and I don't know if it's being navigated properly right now, because, you know, here I am, I am talking about our police out there, you know, giving it their all and not having qualified immunity could be one of the reasons that some aren't going to, to do much in fear. I mean, cops have families, they have mortgages, they've got, you know, kids they're trying to put through school. So it's a tough spot. And I don't think that, I don't know if it's been thought all the way through. Once again, it's just a, just a, a list of things to check off that everybody is doing. And they're not looking at the data. I mean, you really must start looking at the crime data and how this impacts officers doing their jobs. And that's, I mean, that's where I am. I I never even really had to think about it when I was uh, an officer. But now that it is something that has been taken from them in many jurisdictions, and in Maryland, they're in the process of of taking it if it's not already gone. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal. But even with it gone, Coleman, I still believe you stay within the rules. You are you be able to articulate everything you did. And that goes a long way, even if somebody is trying to sue you. Yeah. The the thing with qualified immunity is that there are these cases I've read about where a really bad cop did something terrible in a specific situation. And because of qualified immunity, in order to hold that cop liable, you had to find a precedent example that was extremely similar. And often, as, as we said before, each situation is almost brand new. And if you couldn't find something sufficiently similar then then you couldn't hold the cop liable, which just it, it seems it goes back to the point at the beginning of where do we strike the balance between protecting citizens from the bad behavior of bad cops and giving cops the security and freedom to do an extremely dangerous and important job? Coleman, this is where we go back to executive accountability. Like I just said, we got the Constitution. You'll have your departmental rules. You'll have your state law. If the cop goes outside of the rules, then if you can't get this cop on one thing, then the executives need to figure out a way to to discipline that problematic officer. Mm. If you violate, then that's the executive job. This, This officer 
did some things that are just egregious. What are you going to do about it? Commissioner, deputy commissioner, colonel. It, it all has to be considered. You, you can't ignore bad cops. Bad cops make it so much harder for good cops to do their job. So I, just like, I, you know, my big thing is going after the, the, the violent criminals, the most violent criminals. We need to see the same effort apply to going after bad cops. And I think that that falls on the executives. All right. So, so far this year, according to the Washington Post database, there have been 12 unarmed Americans shot and killed so far. Five of them so far were white, four were black, two were Hispanic, and one was race unknown. And obviously race is at the center of the public conversation about policing in America and has been well, well, for, for decades, really, but in my lifetime, truly since maybe 2012 or 2013. And obviously, when you take the uniform off, whether that's in Baltimore or if you're you know, visiting a, a city where you're not known, you appear to be another black civilian. And, and presumably, like we all have, we, we've had experiences with the cops and so forth. A person like you might be in the unique position of having been on both sides of it, although I'm sure it is a little different to be pulled over as a cop, but what what is your impression of the degree to which racial bias is a force both in police shootings of unarmed civilians and then separately in the daily interactions between civilians and the cops? You know what? I'll I'll tell you a, a quick story. A couple of years ago, I was driving. I got pulled over in a different jurisdiction. And I'm a a retired commissioner and I'm pulled over and I still put my hands up. It was on a dark road. I still put my hands up. When the officer got to my window, I still said, officer, I'm lower. I'm going to I'm going to reach for my wallet. And the cop said, what are you doing all of that for? And I'm thinking. So you don't shoot. So you're at ease and we can both make it through this. So I told him, I'm a retired officer. I'm armed. And he said, what are you doing all of this for? Put your hands down. And you know, Coleman, I did not. want. I, I said, I'm going to put my hands down slowly. And I, I was a cop. So the thing is, it didn't change for me. When I was an undercover drug detective and I was doing buys, I was buying, you know, portions of kilos and doing all this stuff around Baltimore. One of the guys who came in to train me to, you know, before I got out of there, one of the best undercover cops in Baltimore City, he told me that no matter what, don't forget that I'm black. I had a sergeant. He was white. His biggest concern when we would go out to do our drug buys, he would be more concerned with what the police were going to do than what the suspects did. So this is is, that's a tough man. It's just tough to explain it. Even I'm black. I'm a cop. But I still can remember, you know, the things that my mother told me as a kid, you know, about dealing with police. And I was a police. I'm still, you know, I'm a retired officer. All these, 
you know, thousands of cops work for me, but my mind still has a perception of how do I deal with officers that have no clue who I am? So that's one thing. But if you, you're talking about these uses of force, once again, case by case basis, what happened? And I'm going to say this, and it might piss some more people off. Just because someone doesn't have a gun does not mean that a police officer cannot use force. That is one. It, 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 it bothers me a lot. I've seen circumstances where that cop is losing really, really bad. And that person isn't stopping and they have to escalate to their service weapon. No mace, no nightstick, no verbal taser isn't working. They have to escalate. So, again, I, I, I can't quickly give an answer when when those you know numbers like that come out. But you said uh, four black, two, two uh, Hispanic so far this year, five, five were white. So far, I would I would I would need to know, you know, like what's the incident? What happened um, for each one? And I I just never really just dive into that because that's one of the things that I had to do was look at uses of force and go through them and see what happened. Mm. Now, I would look for patterns in the uses of force Did this officer. What's their background? How many incidents have they had? Are, Are we seeing too much usage of a service weapon? I mean, you know, that's completely possible. Cops who've been in multiple shootings, you better start paying attention. Not saying that they've done something wrong, but is there something through training? What are we missing here? Officers who use their taser too much, use their mace too much. Officers who have too much uh, complaints of discourtesy. These are things, Coleman, that executives need to be held accountable for. And One of the biggest things I keep saying over and over again, the lack of executive accountability is impacting what we're getting as citizens across the United States. So I want to go back to that, uh, that interaction you had as a civilian with the cop. This is, uh, I think that's a really interesting little interaction to analyze because on the one hand, my dad I wouldn't say he gave me the talk in the sense that he gave me the you're a black man dealing with the cops talk, but he gave all of his children a talk about how to deal with the cops. And this is you, you know, if you're driving, you keep your hands on the wheel where they can see it. You don't say anything disrespectful, say sir and so forth and just get through the interaction. It, you, if they ask you why you're pulled over, say you don't know. So parts of the talk were actually not just to survive the interaction, but also to, to not make it easier or uh, to, to know your rights as well. And everything about that talk seems to me that not only should every black parent tell their children this, it seems every white, Hispanic or Asian parent should tell their children this as well, how to make it, how to not be an unintentionally a difficult suspect. You know, just, just something as simple as, as keeping your hands on the wheel. If you just don't know to do that, the cop is likely just to be a little more on edge than you want them to be, even if, if, if your intentions are, are perfectly pure. But in your case, it seems like the cop, was it that he was offended that you were afraid? Yeah, he was offended. He really felt that, I, I need to say this now, when I did 
get my ID and everything out of my wallet after the stop was over. We talked for about 30 minutes on the side of the road. Mm. But anyway, he, he was offended that I behaved that way when I'm trying to, you know, explain to him I'm retired, but I still understand the dynamics of what can happen. It wasn't about, you know, I'm saying it's not about you. It's about what I know can happen. Car stops are one of the riskiest things that an officer can do. We all know that. I want it to be smooth for you. I want you to be comfortable with me and I want to get this over with. If he wanted to give me a citation, fine. I, I, I just want to get it over with and we both go on our way. But, you know, Coleman, I'm just trying to say I got to talk too. my mother worked in uh, corrections. She did 33 years in corrections. And I remember the talk. The talk was answer. Yes, sir. No, sir. Never run from a cop. Never turn your back to a cop and always try to remember their badge number. And if you see someone that, you know, tell them to go get help. And I don't know what age your dad gave you to talk, but I got to talk when I was maybe 10 years old, when I could start to go out and play without supervision. So, you know, that, that's something that, and it just doesn't go away. It didn't go away when I got a badge. It didn't go away when I became a sergeant. It didn't go away when I became a commissioner. And I, I do really, I think about that a lot, but also think about how many times I'm seeing people encourage black people, brown people to resist arrest. That's the one thing now that I'm really starting to be worried about. Look, resisting arrest, people just must understand that cop is trained to overcome. That cop, he or she is trained to win, period. So if you think that you're going to tussle, they're going to get past that. They're trained that way. Step by step, I'm going to escalate to overcome you. And yes, some cops go too far. And we've got cops, and we've seen it on these videos, in my opinion, that have gone too far. And I do believe that they should go to jail. But on a, just a, a simple interaction, it is better to comply and live than to fight and be hurt or be arrested. So I don't know if I answered you completely there, but that's how I see the, uh, the topic. I think it has to be in the back or even in the forefront of a lot of cops' minds that officers get killed all the time, right? Like, I mean, well, the, the, so far this year, 26 officers have been shot dead, according to gunviolencearchive.org. And, and many more have been shot but survived. And I've seen videos on YouTube of nightmare scenarios where a cop's pulling over a suspect that seems not totally strange, seems pretty normal, and then whips out a gun in under a second, shoots out the window, and drives off, right? And that, obviously, that scenario is rare. That's not your, that's not every traffic stop. But the the mere possibility of that has to be somewhere in a, in a cop's mind. And, but, but at the same time, if a cop holds that in his mind too much, you know, he, I imagine he could go too far in the other direction and be 
so suspicious of every interaction and just be operating on an absolute hair trigger and then overdo it when someone was reaching for their wallet. So, I mean, that's just a fundamental problem. And it's really difficult to know how to strike that balance. So to what extent are those kinds of things in a cop's mind when he or she is making a routine traffic stop? And how do you approach that fear? Well, and then, see, here, here we go again with, you know, each cop really being, although trained the same, each cop may have a different perception as to what's going on. But once again, I'll go back again to training. A lot of these incidents, the cops have put themselves at a tactical disadvantage where the person gains control of the situation. But even if you did have control and you lose that control, where does your training kick in? How do you reestablish control? Do you continue to engage or do you disengage? And I, I saw one recent, I saw one of those stops that you're referring to. And you know what? Sometimes they're just on top. Sometimes they're there on top of their game and they beat you. And unfortunately in policing, if you get beat, you could die. So if you're running through that in, in your mind, every time you're doing a car stop and it's taking control of you, Maybe you need to think about a different profession. It is not an easy job. We are, you're trained in these situations. You have to think and you have to constantly apply your training and your common sense. And you also listen to your gut with a lot of these interactions. So, Como, I guess what I'm saying is policing isn't just some easy job and it can be dangerous. But if you train properly, you're confident in your skills and you know what to do, you're going to be better off. But my fear, if I have fear, I got to control it because that doesn't give me some right to shoot you. All right. So I guess my my final question is about the source of bad cops and the path forward. So the question is. Everyone would agree that some subset of bad cops, like like every other profession, are just bad at their jobs. And we could disagree about what percentage of cops fall into that category, but no one no one sane would 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 doubt that. And so the question is, what goes wrong in the system such that? a person who's terrible at, at being a police officer manages to become a cop. So I, I had one conversation with Dr. Michael Sanchez many months ago about this. And he said, one problem is you don't know how someone is going to react to being given the power of a badge and a gun so that it's difficult to predict who is going to become a bad cop once they have the power. So that that's one perspective. But another is that you know, you often know, you're often hiring your problems. You often, it might've been clear with some kind of evaluation that someone being hired on day one was going to be the problem going forward. And then there's additionally the problem of getting rid of when it becomes apparent that there is someone who's a serial abuser of some kind, how does one get rid of him or her with uh, while still maintaining 
the kind of union protections that everyone in, in professions from policing to teachers expect. So basically that that's the question is what's the source of bad cops? At what point in the system does something go wrong? And what is the remedy to the problem of bad cops? Good question. With bad cops, I'm primarily going to look at the first line supervisor and that's the sergeant level. The sergeant has the most interaction with their officers. They're the ones that really have the task of evaluating if this officer is competent. And if the officer somehow continues to thrive while doing a horrible job, then the sergeant is failing. So you need sergeants to basically be your eyes and ears when it comes to initial evaluations of an officer. How do they get in? Recruitment matters. And like, I'm, you know, we were talking about professionals leaving policing, and then you have jurisdictions just lowering standards to fill a seated roll call. This is happening. And then we all act shocked when we have issues of corruption. And it's happened in jurisdiction after jurisdiction. So your first line supervisor evaluations, then you, and I'm not just talking about sitting in the office and giving you a performance review. I'm talking about getting out there and going to their calls, seeing how they're handling their calls. You also need serious internal affairs efforts. I'm big on integrity stings, checking the officers to see how they perform. And it could be from a found property of drugs left at a location to just simply undercover officer posing as a drug dealer and seeing if all of the money makes it into submission. And again, this goes to executive accountability. You know, in Baltimore years ago, we had an early intervention plan if we saw officers with too many complaints. And we would pull those officers in. Chief Illegal is involved. The Infernal, uh, Internal Affairs Chief, excuse me, is involved. And you're confronting these officers when you see issues. But on a daily basis, that should be the sergeant. So I, I believe there are ways to do it. And you need to be aggressive with it, though. This isn't something you just are passive about. Just like going after violent criminals, you have to be aggressive about getting bad officers out of the profession because we're seeing the damage that they're doing. With these body cams, we're all seeing the damage that bad officers, bad troopers, bad sheriffs, whatever, are doing to the profession. So that's where we need to get serious about it. And I, I believe that policing would be would definitely benefit if we did that. And we clearly need to increase that effort across the United States. All right. Well, on that note, this has been an excellent conversation. I'm so glad I was able to get you on. And um, is there anywhere you can point my listeners who want to follow you? Um, I don't know. I, I'm just a uh, Twitter, Twitter handle. Either. Yeah, I have uh, at Deputy Barksdale. 
on Twitter. And now you're you're on CNN frequently now as well. Yeah. Yes, I am. Yeah. So as a law enforcement, no, it's you know. Yesterday we had that uh, active shooter. And, you know, breaking news, I was on a while yesterday and I I just really have a new respect for uh, what the media has to do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I had no idea. It makes me feel good that you're increasing the quality of cable news, which badly needs to be higher quality. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much again. All right. Take care. All right. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.